You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Paolo Gacci Galupi's new book is The Doubt Factory. Paolo, would you read to me from the book? Sure. Let's see. I'll start right from the beginning. He'd been watching her for a long time, watching how she moved through the still waters of her life, watching the friends and family who surrounded her. It was like watching a bright tropical fish in an aquarium, bounded on all sides, safe inside the confines, unaware of the glass walls. He could watch her sitting at a coffee shop, intent on something in her ebook reader, drinking the same skinny latte that she always ordered. He knew her street, and he knew her name. He knew her class schedule. Calculus and AP Chem, Honors English, a 3.9 GPA because some asshole bio teacher had knocked off her perfect score over a triviality of how she formatted her lab notes. Smart girl. Sharp girl. And yet, completely unaware. It wasn't her fault. All the fish in the tank were the same. All of them swimming in perfectly controlled waters, bare millimeters from another world that was hostile to them entirely. Moses Cruz felt like he'd been watching all of them forever, but Alex Banks he could watch in that aquarium and hours could pass. Fundraising events, field hockey tournaments, vacations to St. Bart's and Aspen. It was a safe and quiet world she lived in, and she, just like a beautiful neon tetra in a tropical tank, had no idea she was being watched. All of her people were like that. Just a bunch of pretty fish in love with themselves and how beautiful they were, in love with their little aquarium castles. All of them thinking that they ran the world. None of them realizing that only a thin pane of glass separated them from disaster. And here he was, standing outside, holding a hammer. Paolo, this is a fabulous book. And what interests me is that this is a book that Philip K. Dick would have written as a science fiction novel 30 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) And today it's a mainstream thriller for kids. So talk about that kind of dissonance of writing about a science fiction present. Yeah, actually, you know, it's interesting because I actually sort of wrestled with the idea of whether I wanted to try to cast this as a science fictional novel because everything else that I've done is science fiction. And what I concluded was that at this point, if you're going to write about the kinds of topics in this book, that it, it, science fiction essentially would have obscured the understanding of our present world. And whenever I'm trying to write, I'm, I'm always hoping to create a better, clearer understanding of our present moment. This book all focuses on the doubt industry and the product defense industry and public relations and the kinds of damage that it causes. And so the only way to do that and really bring it home is to write about as many real companies as you can and pack as many real companies and real case studies as you can into a story so people can sort of see the recognized brands that they respect in a different light. When you conceived of this novel, did you think about the story arc and the characters and the plot first, or did you, uh, were you doing research and looking into the doubt industry, as you call it, what a great name, and then you said, oh my God, there's got to be a great story here. 
I, the, the research sort of came first, and it came in little dribs and drabs. Friends of mine are science journalists, and so you start to sort of see things that they're reporting on or see things that they're noticing. Um, friends of mine like Michelle Nyehouse, who writes for National Geographic and Smithsonian, she did a, an article on the doubt industry at one point. There were a lot of different things that were happening, and all that kind of put the industry on my radar. And at that point, it just sort of sat in the back of my head. But, but then there was a moment where I thought, you know, who are these people? Who are these people who stand up and are willing to, you know, sort of help aspirin defend itself against charges that it causes Ray's syndrome? You know, who are these people who want to get out in front with ExxonMobil and help them to create doubt about whether or not climate change exists? And you're sort of curious about that. And so I started sort of crafting the idea. I mean, these are perfectly nice people, very functional, you know, they, you know, to have good kids and they take care of their dog and, you know, it's, they're, I'm sure they're, they're wonderful, good Americans and, and yet they do horrific things and they're all entirely legal. And that's, that was really fascinating to me. So I started thinking I wanted to write a story about a girl who benefits from all of that and her having to come to grips with where her prosperity comes from. Talk about the Dowd industry and the examples that your friend encountered. Were they directed against her work specifically? No, but, you know, there's a doctor I know, Dr. Theo Colburn, who did a lot of pioneering research into endocrine disruptors, which are synthetic chemicals that mimic hormones. The biggest example of this that's been on the news past has been bisphenol A, which is an estrogen mimic. And you saw a really, really interesting campaign against from the chemical industry trying to discount the idea that bisphenol A was dangerous, that bisphenol A is an estrogen, and that we need to deal with that problem. And, and so when Dr. Dr. Colburn's offices are right across the hall from mine, and so I sort of hear about different things that were happening, and you sort of hear about you know, the dynamics that they were encountering as they were trying to convince Congress to, to pay attention to these issues. And it was fascinating and disturbing. You know, we're right in the middle in California of a huge campaign of where the doubt industry is is closing in on us with regards to the deadly soda tax that will deprive uh, Americans right, of their right. 45 ounces, 15 teaspoons of sugar drinks. Right. Well, I mean, you, you see certain kinds of product defense tools getting used again and again whenever whenever a company fears that it's it's about to experience product deselection, which is this great term that I came across in a uh, in a PR brochure actually about how to fight product deselection. That this is the thing you need to worry about. Yeah, it's that moment when when consumers you know or or regulation makes it impossible for you to to make money off of the product that you know made made you real harm to people, even if you can sell it very easily. Well, talk about how we rank our fears and how we experience our fears and how our fears are essentially sold to us and bargained to us because that's a, a really a big part of how, you know, the, the understructure of, of this novel in terms of how what we're afraid of makes us act. So what I think about in terms of our visceral reactions to fear is that we're, we're bioadapted to react to present threats. We're, we're bioadapted to deal with the tiger that's right in front of us and run away from it. Um, we're not bioadapted to deal with the idea of diffuse or sort of statistical threats. So those kinds of threats don't penetrate our psyche very strongly. It's one of the reasons why we have such a hard time getting our head around the idea that global warming is is dangerous. And it's one of the reasons why Hollywood creates such terrible 
sort of warning stories like the day after tomorrow where we're going to create a sudden instant freeze and because that's the only way you can get actually a visceral reaction out of people. Um, it makes for sort of thrilling storytelling, but it's, it's bogus scientifically. But, you know, it's this weird thing where, you know, this very slow-moving apocalypses can, can catch us and we don't take them seriously until they're genuinely upon us. And it's interesting, like, I mean, you know, we're afraid of two Ebola cases here in the United States. We're, we're not afraid of thousands and thousands of them seething over in West Africa. And this is, looks like a, like a pretty big sort of bubbling problem. And, and that's, it's not so much that there are a couple here, it's that there are many over there that people should be worried about. And yet, you know, we didn't, we never took that seriously until a couple of cases arrived here. And I don't know, it's just fascinating, yeah. Talk about creating Alex and her family and her father and, and his company and that kind of family tension. You had to do a great job of creating Alex's voice. I really love reading this book. It's so much fun. I, you know, I enjoyed writing it. It was one of the surprises, actually, was that as soon as, as, soon as I started writing about the family and, you know, the first scene where Alex goes home and is sitting at the dinner table with her father and her, her sort of ADD brother and her mom, and, and they're all sort of having their dinner table chit-chat. They came alive almost immediately, all of their different personalities and all their functional spots and all their dysfunctional spots all, all came together. And it was actually quite a joy to write those family scenes. It was actually really easy to humanize Alex's father and him seem both good and distracted and caring and, you know, a whole bunch of different things, even as he's doing this very, very um, sort of ethically questionable work. Well, that's, I think, one of the strengths of this book is that it operates in a completely gray zone, which doesn't necessarily give you a lot of room for creating this super tense, fun plot with all the twists you create, none of which I want to reveal because it's just too much fun and too fast to read. Right. Well, I, you know, one of the things that I really like are, are con and caper stories. You know, I was always a big fan of things like The Sting. And there was a point as I was working on the story that I realized I wanted this to be both a thriller, but I also wanted it to be fun. I wanted it to have a certain sense of play and a sort of grip your seat sort of experience at the same time. And so I, I really went went towards the, the con structure as, as one that I wanted to play with. And so that kind of started giving me some tools to work with as I was constructing the story to make it sort of this, you know, this constant cat and mouse game between people who are starting to threaten Alex and, and Alex's father's own machinations, and then Alex in the middle trying to figure it all out. You create a really great descent group, 2.0. So talk about that and about the different kinds of descent and how they play into the social fabric in helping change and hindering change. Uh, well, one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot is that it's interesting what we accept day to day. It's interesting to, what, we'll, what we, as a matter of course, in our society are willing to accept. We um, are easily boiled frogs. Well, right. There was a moment when I was doing research for the Dow Factory, and I came across this example of the aspirin industry defending itself against charges that it was causing race syndrome in children. And, you know, the CDC and the Surgeon General were saying, this is dangerous. Don't give aspirin to your kids if they've got a fever. This is super dangerous. But meanwhile, Aspen is still fighting to keep warning labels off their product. And that was kind of shocking because what that meant was that for every year that the aspirin industry delayed labeling, around 400 extra kids died each year. So when you add that up, you're like, oh, and they, they managed to delay for about four years before they finally got labeled. So if you do the math, you suddenly end up with about 1,600 dead kids. 
which is kind of half a 911. <laughs> That's a I scary, mean, frightening 3, number. 3,000 people or more, around 3,000 some people died in 911. 1,600 people, you know, just died in that period while, while, where aspirin was delaying being labeled. And as soon as they got labeled, then, then, aspir- then uh, Ray's syndrome deaths plummet. And you see this thing and you're like, that's not right. <laughs> and yet we sort of accept that, oh, yeah, there were these delays and, oh, well, you know, that's the way it goes. And maybe there's a lawsuit. But, but you, you sort of think also, like, why are people not more outraged? And so there's this, in, in the book, there's a group named 2.0, and, and they're sort of gunning for a change in society. And they're interested in direct action. And there are ethically gray spaces where, you know, we sort of talk about, like, how much can you sit back versus how do you act and how do you fight back against somebody who literally is willing to sort of balance your life against their profits. Yeah, anyway, it was, it was interesting writing that because 2.0 is always on the, on the ethical edge of good, bad, what are they exactly? Um, you can understand their perspective, but they're also troubling because they really want to shake things up. You mentioned something I think that's really interesting to me, which is the slow motion apocalypse. I, I've been thinking about this for a while now. It's going to be in my next book, uh, The Water Knife, which is going to come out next year. But I've really been thinking a lot about the idea that apocalypses are always slow until they're very, very fast. You know, there's this tipping point moment where all of the mistakes that we've made all along as it all builds up, and then there's a cascade effect. And we don't notice until we're in the plummet. Um, but the buildup was all there. We could all watch it happening. And I think a lot about this in relation to climate change, actually. We can see the build happening. We don't know where the cliff is. And yet we know there's a cliff out there somewhere. Talk about this kind of edge that you're treading in terms of writing fiction that reads a bit like science fiction but is completely solid reality-based thrillers. And also, I think interestingly, is a book that any adult could pick up. A John Grisham fan, anybody who likes oh, that kind of stuff would, my heart. would love this book. But also, I mean, you could hand it straight to your kid who would also love it. So a couple of things. I really want to write books that, uh, you know, I think of them, I think of it as writing books for all ages. You know, there's, you know, we don't normally automatically say that just because a movie is rated PG that many different ages can't enjoy it. There's this sort of strange conception about books for some reason that just because you've written it so that a, a teen can love this book, that it, that 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 therefore an adult has to feel, have their intelligence insulted. And I don't know where that comes from. I've seen it again and again and again, the assumption that books for teens are somehow lesser books. And, uh, and it's been frustrating for me because it's really been where I've focused a lot of my efforts over the last several years because I love, I love the genre and I love writing for teens. And it's, you get almost the same negative reaction when you tell people that you write for teens that you do when you get, tell people that you write science fiction. There's a oh, I don't read that. And, and, you, and you say, well, all right, let me tell you what I write about. And then you tell them, you know, say, oh, well, I write about child soldiers in a drowned Washington, D.C. And they say, oh, really? Well, that sounds interesting. Or I say, you know, oh, well, I'm writing this political thriller all about this doubt industry and this girl who finds out her father is, you know, involved in these, you know, terrible schemes to make money. And, and they're like, oh, well, this is very interesting. And, and it seems like you almost have to sort of sidestep who you were imagining when you were writing it and just get to the point of what, what you were writing about before people will sort of take you seriously again. And, you know, that's their problem. That's not really mine. So, Paolo Bacigalupi's new book is The Doubt Factories. Thank you for speaking with me, Paolo. Thank you, Rick. 
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.